Welcome to the GeoMob Podcast, where we discuss geo-innovation in any and all forms, whether for fun or profit. Welcome to the GeoMob Podcast. Today is going to be an amazing podcast. Lorraine Rutt is a physical geographer in a different way. She sculpts pieces that are both artistic and cartographic. I went to meet Lorraine thinking that she was an artist who made pocket globes, only to discover that she's a really hardcore geographer with an amazing outlook on social geography. She produces pieces that are both beautiful and revealing. If you have the opportunity to view the images in the show notes or on her website while listening to the podcast, you'll be blown away and it will actually make the podcast better. So if you've got access to a computer, pause, pull up the show notes and then carry on listening to us because it's going to be a fantastic journey. Lorraine, welcome to the GMOB podcast. Thank you, Stephen. What an introduction. That's that's a tough <laughs> that's a tough intro to follow. But um, thank you so much. It was a pleasure to meet you at my studio. Thank you for taking the time to come and have a look at what I do. So let's go right back to the beginning. Um, I'm not going to give ages away, but I'll just say that you're closer to my age than to your teens. Yes. <laughs> um, so when you started, what how did you start out as a geographer? Um, I think uh, the passion for geography and maps started with my parents, and my grandparents. We, you know, it, fa- it was family holidays, but that engagement in the classic ornate survey, half inch to uh, well, once, what is now the one to twenty five thousand, um, giving my age away in terms of scale <laughs> changes. Um, <laughs> but just that breakfast table on holidays in the in the kind of British countryside. Oh, no, survey map spread on the table and then a plan of where we were going to walk that day. And I think from the age of probably five or six, I just got, I understood that kind of um, those tiny marks, those kind of scramble of physical little scratchy lines meant a cliff, which meant, oh, this is going to be an adventure. We're going to walk down that cliff <laughs> to get to that finely dotted sandy beach. And I think it just, it just went in that those symbols uh it did linked to um adventures and you know not always great but just you know finding monuments to go and visit and all of those sort of things so it I just realized that maps told stories as 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 well as picture books and and storybooks lovely and how did you actually get started as a professional geographer um that was we relocated and I, I didn't do sixth form at uh, school I wanted to stay on and go to art college but we relocated to London and um, uh, in the days when jobs were advertised as newspapers um, open the evening standard and there was a job for an apprentice cartographer and I said to my dad what's cartographer and he said oh, you're like that it's maps and um, I applied to this job at Birkbeck University of London got it uh, and, and I started working there at the age of 16 um and did a day release got my diploma from um south bank university in cartography so that was one day a week there but right from the first day they put a pen in my hand tracing paper here's the isle of Wight, trace that and then it just kind of went on from there and because birkbeck was just and it is an amazing college and because it's the evening college all of the professors all the academics um have their own areas of research so I was drawing maps from like how far you know from like micro geography to macro geography so so from the incidences of different types of saxifrage occurrence in the arctic you know in the arctic to how far pebbles had moved down kind of alluvial um sort of geomorphology of the African Rift Valley to um, social social and historical geography as well. So railway, you know, railway maps of America. It was everything. And the majority of the work that I produced was either for slides, for lectures, or more commonly than not, uh, for publications, for university publication. Um, so it, right. was, it was vast and varied. Um, and then uh, Professor David Rind uh, joined as head of department and then suddenly the, the whole geography department was shaken up by his passion for digital cartography. Um, so I had my eyes open to that and he was very keen for me to stay on and do my degree in, di- in digital. And but I, 
looks with horror at the air-conditioned, silent kind of rooms that the computers were in then and realised that my passion really for maps was about the physicality of a map, about holding a pen and draw, drawing it on the paper and realised that that's kind of my my artistic side was the bit that I wanted to punch. But one of the last things I did before I left there was joining, um, joining up the lines on the postcode boundaries and I went through several copies of the full set of 1 to 25,000 that had come back from district sorting offices with their postcode boundaries drawn on. And I needed to match up the boundaries from the adjoining um, districts before they could be digitised because the computer at that point couldn't match the, the computer couldn't match those lines. And so I was doing an, an edit on the whole. And that was the job that finished me off. Like, right, I'm done here. I'm going to art college. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> That's the sort of thing that would put you off digital geography. So you went on to do a ceramics degree at St. Martin's. Yeah, central St. Martin's, yeah. And that took you sort of into, but you didn't give up on cartography. You just took that with you into your ceramics. Is uh, that right? Yeah, it kind of wasn't intentional. I, I, you know, when I when I put my drawing tools away at Birkbeck, left the room, I was like, right, I'm never using a ruler to draw a straight line again. You know, I'm free from crypt, clipped corners and scalpels and, you know, and, uh, and that sort of precision. And... Um, Spent the first year kind of making figurative work, kind of, I was really interested in sculpting animals and, you know, just a bit very, very fluid work. And then at some point midway through the course, I was putting a load of texture on some clay, which, you know, clay, fossils forming clay, you know, clay will kind of capture the tiniest of sort of fingerprint, finger mark, anything. And we know so much about historical cultures from the ceramics that, um, that have been, that have endured thousands of years in the ground. Um, and so I was putting this texture in this clay and I flipped it over and I thought, oh, that looks like the African continent. And then this just penny just dropped about taking this stuff of the ground to make scale representations of the ground. And and so that was that was my eureka moment. I thought, hang on a minute, I can have both my passions in the same place. And then you made, um, I'm looking at some pictures now, what you called the journey vases. Yes, yeah, so they they sort of started at college um, initially looking at historical cartography, and I, you know initially I was just sort of so excited about map monsters and and the kind of calligraphy and the, just the beauty of those old old maps without really thinking about what the content actually was. It was just that sense of human adventure and that sort of thing. So I was interesting trying to capture through my ceramics the sort of spirit of adventure and the spirit of voyage and and journeys and the journey vases kind of came about um there's a method of forming ceramic uh vases and forms but vases traditionally have called a coil pot and you literally roll a sausage of clay and you coil it around and you pinch it together and then you um tap it and smooth it and uh, to, to get the form that you're making and very early on, I realised that actually the finger marks that I was making was more interesting than, to me than the flat, um, flat and smoothed form. And I started to see as I was kind of pinching the coils, started to kind of remember journeys that I've been making and sort of realised when you're driving or walking, the, the horizon line is always shifting. And the way that I coil, instead of making a coil there's just one circumference and stop. The way that I coil my vases is it's just, I could I just keep building on and building on and building on. So it just becomes a grad, you know, building up the whole thing. And I quite often I'll have an idea of the form that I want to make with a journey vase, um, which is sort of inspired by the, the, the sense of that piece of landscape as a whole. But more often than not, they'll end up being completely different to the initial thing as I kind of get lost in the journey and it has come from a series of sketches that I've made on journeys and then I try and recreate that and I'm thinking about walking through that landscape or traveling through that landscape as I'm making them. And you've you've kept with these journey vases throughout your careers haven't you because you're working on journey when I was in the studio you were working on a new set of journey vases weren't 
Yes, yes. And they're, they're slightly different in that it's not a journey that I've made, but I suppose it sort of represents a, a personal journey in terms of kind of where my work's um, ended up taking me. I was invited to have an, uh, to show my work at Middle Temple Library um, in 2021. And the librarian, Renee Satterley, uh, very kindly um came to a couple of my exhibitions the, the middle temple library for some, many of you geographers will probably already know this but middle temple library holds one of the rarest globes that there is and it's um it was made by emery molyneux in 1592 and it's the oldest surviving english globe in the country second only to the one that's a petworth house which is in very poor condition fabulous condition it's wonderful but the one at middle temple um there's actually a pair there there's a celestial and terrestrial globe so i'd gone in to look at these ages ago and um, had, had kind of written, requested a, a viewing. And then, um, uh, sorry, cut this very long story very short. Uh, Renee, the librarian, then invited me to have this exhibition and, it, and, and introduced me to um, the researchers from the Tide Project, which are based at the University of um, Oxford in um, Exeter College. And they are, they are researchers, they're literary researchers who are interested in early modern travel. Um, from 1550 to 1700. So around the period of these globes, but also the collection at Middle Temple Library has a really, really early collection that was donated, which founded the library in 1630. So the, the texts and the books that, they were, that we were working with were very, very old. And, um, and I thought, I've got to do something that's about this space and about the Molyneux globe. But what I didn't want to do was just make a facsimile. So I kind of decided that what I wanted to do is kind of do a new a different interpretation of the journey vases but take a journey from Molyneux's globe and it's there's kind of many layers in this but basically I worked from Middle Temple's archive survey photographs of the Molyneux globe and from those I drew out Drake's circumnavigation of the globe so from 1577 to 1580 and paired with the, um, there's a text in that's published in Richard Hacklett's Principles of Navigation. Um, there's an anonymous diary account from somebody who was on Drake's ship. And the um, the academics were, were when I said to them, who who wrote this, you know, who do, who how do we know this? Well, it, they they're pretty certain it was written at the time. Um, and they think the parson probably wrote it because he comes off very, very well in, in the whole account. Um, and it's an account of, and, and what I've done is I've matched pieces of those texts which I've scribed into these little vessels. Um, there's a set of 21 vessels in total, each telling a section of the journey of Drake's circumnavigation from, from Plymouth all the way around and then back in 1580. Um, and on the reverse is the text and I've, what I've done is I've matched the diary account date and place names to the to the map so it's it's like giving a kind of a three-dimensional account of that voyage um, and I formed the vessels I made a soft slab of clay but then I blew into them to get the, get the form so I blew in, held it in my hand blew into them and so the, the form of each one is really partly inspired by the wind in the sails that carried this voyage around but also, as, as Stephen will <laughs> testify, if you hold these vessels to your ear, they work in the same way as a conch shell and you can hear the sea. And the part, part of the, the concept for the whole piece is about we know history from the stories of the victors. We know that those geographies, those early modern travel, and we know that that's the start of colonialism. Those um, tales and voyages and all of those things inspired people to invest in overseas Colin and, and you know all of that stuff when I was at school again showing my age I was taught that Drake was a hero I now know he was a slave trader and a lot of you know what 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 I'm trying to do with my work is it's not um it's not so much a celebration of, of Drake's circumnavigation it's just let's look at history again and let's listen for all of the stories let's tell the whole story it's not about cancelling particular people or things but it's about let's collect more of the information because a lot of the impact of this stuff kind of has a resonance today has a deep deep-seated resonance today and it's so deep-rooted that um 
there are, you know, sort of investigations into things and people go, no, 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 that's not a problem here. And it's because it's so entrenched we don't see it. And, and and what I'm trying to do is make make pieces that start those conversations and make people sort of think again about what they've been taught. And at the same time, you are making exquisite pieces. I mean, when I was standing in your studio and you said, pick one of these up and put it to your ear. I mean, the first thing was I was terrified to pick it up. Because, <laughs> you know, God, imagine if you dropped it, you know, it's part <laughs> of a set of 80. Uh, if, but, I mean, they're exquisite pieces. And when you hold them, you know, they're soft and you, you get that sense of the shape of the sails and everything. But... And like you said, you know, when you put it to your ear, you hear the sea. It's remarkable. Um, they are an exquisite set. Where can people see these pieces, Lorraine? Well, um, uh, they are going to be on show at the Bodleian Library in Oxford um, in, from the 20th of May to the 20th of July, uh, 2023, as part of a... It's going to be in the Western uh, Library in Blackwell Hall, um, but I'm working again with the same academics, so Dr. Dr. Lauren Working and Dr. Emily Stevenson. Um, we're, we're, we're recreating, well, we're, we're moving on from the Middle Temple Library, which sadly wasn't open to the public because of COVID, and we wanted to make a public-facing um, edition of things. So um, they're going to, these, these vessels and some other pieces that I'm making are going to be shown alongside uh, Richard Hacklett's Principles of Navigation and uh, various other 16th century texts from the library. Oh, what a treat. What a treat. I can think of several of our listeners that I know personally who are going to be making an, ex an expedition to Oxford. Um, so let's move on and talk about social geography because you've produced a set of pieces which are, well, to say they're stunning thematic maps is an understatement, you know. Um, you've achieved in clay and glaze um, some quite remarkable images of London. Talk, tell me a bit about those. Thank you. Um, I'm so flattered. Thank you very much. Uh, um, so uh, I think, so initially with the journey vases, I was making things that were quite loose and ephemeral and kind of reminded, personal reminders for me of, of places and just trying to kind of interpret landscapes. And then I moved um moved a few miles in London from where I had been living and I was living at the top of a hill and where I was walking my dogs every day got a very very clear view anybody who knows South London and knows One Tree Hill in winter you've got an, a fantastic view of the London basin and I remembered a, uh, a map that I drew uh, for um, uh, Dr John Shepherd at Birkbeck when I was still in the drawing office for a book that was published in Tokyo which is entirely in Japanese but my name is in there in English and um, and it was a contour map of London and I remember at the time and I was very young then but I remember at the time thinking oh this is unusual you know so used to seeing the city as the built environment you know it's dictated by the buildings and the streets and everything else to actually see a map of the city as a landscape it just triggered something so many years later at the top of this hill and I thought oh yeah I remember that map of London and I thought oh maybe Maybe I could make something which is actually a physical map. So it's a stepped relief map of London. So that was the that was my starting point. And for all nearly all of my work, the, the the journey vases are all one offs as I make them. They're just but the physical landscape pieces that I make along with um, some other things we're going to talk about. Um, I, it involves making quite intricate models and clay doesn't like being lots of different thicknesses so the, in order to make my work what I do is I make a solid porcelain model and from that make a plaster mould and then from that plaster mould I can make um, additions but the plaster mould only gives me the form it doesn't give me the detailed surface but what it did give me was a starting point I thought well, I've got this map of London now so initially I was making um I did a, an edition of 10, which is all sold, of the Lost Rivers of London. And it was just looking at, the there'd been a lot, at that, around that time, sort of 2010, 2012, there'd been a lot of kind of resurgence of interest in the Lost Rivers. And Tom Bolton written a fantastic book. And, um, and there was <laughs> one local one where I just thought, oh, I'm not sure that that's right, actually. Um, 
And so I was just intrigued to start to look at the physical map of London and go, well, this is where they must be because this is where the this is where the the, the river valleys are. This they've got they've got to be there. It can't be there because it's going uphill, you know. So so that was so looking at actually a physical model. Um, so I did the the Lost Rivers editions, and then um, along came Southwark Council's area planning. Um, uh, agenda and we suddenly realised our studios were had been earmarked to be turned into a she she shopping mall and uh, we've been there for quite a long time going oh nobody's going to want to develop these studios into housing because I know so many artists who've lost London artists and, and other city artists who you know you find yourself an affordable little corner and then the next thing a developer comes along and wants to put a house on it and, and you know and you just get constantly getting priced out um and and so you know i'd always go oh you know nobody's going to want to live in a railway arch because what i hadn't figured is we've got in a prime spot right behind peck and rye station which is a grade two listed building and then at one point at some point after um we had european money to to regenerate peckham and the whole area became gentrified and at that point, there was a tipping point around 2010, where suddenly the value of the property had shot up so much that they were just looking at every little bit. And other friends who work in the NHS, other friends who are teaching assistants and teachers and so on. And, you know, and not only that, you know, this is all, you know, ev everywhere, you know, cleaners need somewhere to live. You know, not everybody can afford to live in Peckham. But if you you and your family have lived there for years, I mean, it's not just about Peckham, but this is the personal story to me. It's what prompted this next series of work. And I just thought this is so unfair that, that it's just the poorest are always the first to be displaced. And I got thinking about Charles Booth's poverty maps and I thought I want to do something that tells this story, a little bit of this story now, because from outside London seems like a very, very wealthy city, which it is. It's, it, you know, there's a lot of wealthy people in London, but it doesn't coexist that everybody in London is wealthy. And uh, what I want to do is to just try and do something that maps the wealth divide in London um, at that point in time so I gathered um, some different sets of data initially the first piece I did that I was saying to Stephen when he saw it he said oh what's this, what's this gold one here and I said oh that's just called Zoopla uh, with an exclamation mark and it was just that bit about people seeing property in London as investments and the whole notion of it of, of the built environment being about places to live and places to work being secondary to the whole investment thing and, and I was a bit in case you haven't guessed it already I was quite annoyed about that <laughs> um, yeah. and and then I just thought oh I'm onto something here and then I thought right okay I want to do something a bit more specific um, I don't have the resources that Charles Booth's had and um, I can't work on that scale but um, so I found uh, the London policy report uh, London Policy Institute report on child poverty from 2013 and in it were a set of maps that um, were looking at different aspects of child poverty and there was a fabulous map um, that was just really clear and I thought I can make this work so on this piece which is called have and have not um, the blue shaded areas on that map represent um, children where the uh, five percent of children are living in child poverty um uh sorry no i think it's 20 i'm gonna to have to check that data Stephen. i'm so sorry i've got podcast shy um but what i did was marry that with um savile's estate agents report on prime london which uh had a map of uh, properties that sold for over a million houses that sold, sold for over a million in the same time period so i just put those two opposing data sets together and called it have and have not and the third piece was called home and away and it used um and it that shows council wards where five percent of families are in temporary accommodation uh and then the gold dots on that map are the um properties that were bought using an offshore fund and that data came from the fabulous selling england by the private um, selling england by the offshore pound that which was the private eye um commissioned yeah. uh, wonderful map um 
incredible detailed map. So it was a joy to put those two things together. And then to my delight, um, the Museum of London bought the triptych and for the permanent collection at the Museum of London. Wow. Yeah. That's pretty cool. I wasn't expecting that when I made <laughs> They were just... They were the ma- thing about... They were just made out of a moment of passion, really. That was... That yeah. was uh, All of us who've done social geography at some stage have made maps of this sort of thing and thought they were interesting. But they're not things that you want to hang on your wall in your living room. Yeah. Um, they're not, they're, you know, they're maps, you know, and they're interesting, but they're not pieces of art. You've turned these into pieces of art which are actually speaking to you. You know, you have to understand what's going on and it might take some people a little while to understand what's going on. But once you, you get that... You know, these things are not only fascinating and beautiful, but they're actually got a message which is an important message. And, you know, it would, you know, they are an amazing contribution to this whole area of social geography, in my opinion. But when I started, I think I talked about you as an unusual physical geographer. And I I meant that because... Physical geography, you know, we've just talked about social geography and that's really cool and fashionable, you know, and we all um, are into everything happens somewhere and place is important in this regard, in policy and all of that. Um, And physical geography is sort of old-fashioned. It's what um, you and I did when we were at school, probably, you know, tundra and all of that. And here we are um today you know and i don't know whether they even teach physical geography but if they do it's certainly not what people consider to be the interesting part of geography um but you've done something because you make physical pieces about physical geography um and you sort of rediscovered or uncovered the river valley around where you live, where you were referring to it just before. So tell me a little bit about the Peckham, the Peckham River Valley. Yeah, it's, um, uh, there are a few different, there are a few different, uh, quite often with what I do, there's, uh, I wouldn't say it's like a stream of consciousness or anything. There's just, I've got a nub of ideas and there's always like several things that I want to be working on. Then sometimes several things all come together and it makes me go, right, I'll focus on that now. And um, it was a combination of kind of working on the Lost Rivers of London piece and my dogs playing in a pool of water on Peckham Rye, which which wasn't a landscape pond. It's just where there just happened to be this pool of water consistently. And... Um, the Lost Rivers um, aficionados cite the River Peck as being, there's an ornamental stream that comes through Peck and Rye Park. Well, I know for a fact that that comes, that's the overflow from the underground reservoir at Honor Oak. And, and so I thought, well, yeah, that, you know, that could have been on the original course of the Peck. Um, but what about this, you know, this is very natural valley on the other side of the park. And surely that's where it should be. So, um, I then spent uh, a fair bit of time making a detailed contour, step contour of uh, of the local area. Um, off the top of my head, I can't remember what scale it was at. Um, but then what I did was get a series of um, historic maps. So starting with John Rock's map of Surrey from 1768 and then Dewhurst map of London from 1842, Ordnance Survey from 1892, and then on its survey 2004 and scaling them and um, onto the physical geography, physical map. And thankfully, the the footprint of Peckham High Street and the footprint of Peckham Rye Common has been consistent over the last 250 years. So I was able to scale these historic maps onto that landscape and hey, presto, the River Peck drops that, that's picked out on John Rock's map just drops neatly into the river valley where my dog, my, where, the, where the puddle was where my dogs um, were playing. And then I discovered um, a bit more research that the River Peck had been um, commissioned into the sewers um, when uh, Basil Jett did the, the major sewer thing. And as the area developed, once the railway came in, 
um, in the 18, 1870s, 1880s, suddenly the, the market gardens turned to, there were brick fields and then there were terraces and then there were the workers because they could get into London. So it's just that, and I've made them at postcard format. So they're A6 in size and they're translucent. So they're really, really thin pieces of porcelain. So a bit reminiscent of Victorian um, uh, slides, like illuminated slides and you can hold them up to the light and because where I've pressed in for the built the built environment they're re the porcelain is just like millimeter thin and they glow with a bit with a backlight and so you can hold them up in series and you can just see how Peckham has changed from a rural village to an urban village over 250 years and, and where the river Peck used to be and 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 it's now gone. So that's both investigation, historical and physical geography and actually in items that you can hold in your hand and hold up to the light. Yeah. Quite fantastic. So your company is called the Pocket Globe Company. Yes, the, um, the, the Little Globe. The Little Globe little Company. Globe. Sorry, sorry. That's all right. Sorry. <laughs> we can both make mistakes on the podcast. That's oh, yeah, fine. I know. I can make so I'll, repeat, I'll repeat that. It's the Little Globe Company. Um, and I think that sort of gives the story away, probably, because the globes are small. And, um, but talk to me about those. Tell, me a, tell us a little bit about how you got into making those and what you do now with them. Okay, so um, that started, uh, there is a really long story, but I'll keep it brief. I was looking for um, a, a project like a product that I could sell through museum gift shops that was that was my thing and I thought oh, I'll make some small globes and my initial the initial idea was something that I could get batch made in Stoke-on-Trent and outsource the box making and it took about two years to develop and find you try you're trying to make a sphere in ceramic is difficult because um, changing clay to fired ceramic requires the heat process and part of that heat process is um, the the merging of the clay particles, so so everything shrinks, and because of you know gravitational forces and everything else, at the point at which porcelain particles become molten enough to to vitrify in the kiln, the structure becomes weaker, so they shrink more uh, vertically than they do horizontally, and there, a lot of clays won't cope with that structural change. So there was a lot of development time, and then when I realised that. Um, that I did, I discovered that I did have a, a market for them. Um, and I thought, well, I want to get these as accurate as possible. So I commissioned a 3D print, um, which was still very, very pixelated and there's no coastlines on them or um, no islands, no longitude, latitude or anything. So what I did, the, the 3D print was really a starting point. So I could say, yeah, this is based on actual survey data. This is satellite survey data. Um, but then from that, I then made a, made a, a much more refined model from which I made my moulds from which I work. I then went to this factory in Stoke and just, can you make me a dozen of these? And um, they went, oh, yeah, what are they? Well, okay. And um, several months later, everything after two years of working away, three things happened in the space of the week. I did Liberty's open call. You may have seen Liberty. I think they're, they're being rerun at the moment. Um, the Liberty's the store in, in London. Um, did an artist open call because they wanted makers pieces and I thought oh this is perfect for what I'm doing so I I got shortlisted to go and do that um, went in and I got <laughs> I got fast track so when I yeah, sat at the table to do my three minute pitch I was sitting in front of the managing director at the time Ed Burstall and he was like, "Oh my God, these are amazing! But these are artistic pieces. These is, you know, I can't, you know." They, and his his eyes lit up. It was amazing. It was such an amazing response, and it just gave me the confidence that I needed at that point. Um, the next day, I got a call from the factory in Stoke saying, "We can't make these. There is so much post production work. We can cast them, but actually, in reality, they couldn't. They were misaligned. It's a seven piece mold, and they the way that they work in factories, they make mugs, and even with the figurines, there's kind of it, it, it's hard to it's hard to describe in a podcast. I need to kind of show you physically, but they they couldn't do it. And uh, and then a gallery that I'd kind of wanted to be with for some time, who specialized at the time was specialising in maps, 
um, they'd seen some photographs. So I had a bit of press at the time as well, and they said, "Can we? Can we represent you? Can we take your work to art fairs?" And and there was just this kind of whole realization that oh, this thing I'd initially set it up, which is why it's called the Little Globe Co, and it's not under my name, was because it was always intended to be a, a, a like a side project. Um, but what happened was I uh, got some lovely photographs done and um, by a very talented photographer and it just opened the door for me and suddenly I got press that I'd you know, been knocking on doors for years going, can I show you my work, please? And then it just flipped with those photographs. Suddenly people were going, can we, could, would you like to be our maker of the month? And, would you, you know? and I was like, oh, what's going on? But what happened was it, I just suddenly, my international audience just opened up and the majority of these pieces now go to, um, they go all over the States, Canada, um, China. And, and they're sort of, and you make these in the studio, don't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, they're, you all, ha- they're you, all handmade. They're all handmade. Yeah. Um, and they're... They're reminiscent of the pocket globes that those early travellers took with them, which were initially very inaccurate, but they gave some sort of sense of the the contours of the world. Um, And they come in these beautiful cases and beautiful finishes. And if we go back to those globes, and you mentioned it when you were talking about the globes at Middle Temple... um, Globe makers for hundreds of years have not only made globes of the Earth as it would appear from space, but they've made globes of space as it appears from the Earth, the celestial globes, which are just amazing things, you know, and have all the star patterns. And you started doing that when you met um, a real spaceman, didn't you? Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, these the, the globes were, were were inspired by the sort of seventeenth, eighteenth century globes. But the, I suppose, the main inspiration for me was two things. Firstly, that we've got this virtual, we've got Google Earth in our phones, we've got the world in our pockets, and I wanted to make something that was tangible. That kind of didn't matter where we were on Earth, we could think about it as a whole and see and feel the whole thing and I wanted them to have the familiarity like the weight and familiarity of a pebble you might have picked up on the beach so there's just something kind of grounding about it um a very analog um grounded thing but the 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 thing that really kind of inspired me uh, was um the Apollo missions um and this is where I am going to show my age I was very very young but I sat with my dad and watched the, the, the Apollo 11 moon loon man landings and um when I first kind of went to art college as well I think I stumbled across the blue marble image and I've just like I just it's just such a profound photograph human eyes seeing the earth from the distance of the moon I mean that that's just and it, it, that that really woke a whole generation to the, the fact that the earth is tiny and unique and there's a real gem out there um so I was inspired. Yeah, these 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 globes were inspired by the Apollo missions. And then um, blow me down, I met one. <laughs> I met an Apollo fifteen astronaut, Colonel Al Warden, at New Scientist Live back in twenty sixteen. And um, and I was like, oh my god, there's an astronaut in the room. And anyway, I got introduced to him and. Uh, he loved my work, and I was so speechless. I just kind of gabbled and didn't manage to say anything coherent at all other than yeah, inspired have you know um and he was there he, we were both at the event for four days and whenever he had a spare sort of 10 15 minutes between his schedule he'd just come over and chat and um and it just blew me away that he completely got what i was doing he picked up a, um the little blue and white uh like kind of that was inspired by wedgwood um uh, globe and he's saying this is you know this, to him it was so reminiscent about what he saw when he orbited the moon 75 times and I was a bit like you know I think I cried so much the weekend. <laughs> I, was like, I can't believe this is happening and he was just really warm and generous anyway the, the roll on a year and I'm setting up the same exhibition got invited to exhibit again the same exhibition the following year and in, on the setup day, I suddenly hear this big booming voice behind me going, hello, and kind of came a great big bear hug. And he just said, I love your work. He said, it's on my desk. It's pride of place on my desk. 
Um, I've been thinking about this. We've got the 50th anniversary of the Lunar Landings coming up. Would you do a limited edition for me that I can put my name on uh, to celebrate the, the Lunar Landings? I was like, hang on a minute, Al, let me think about that. Yes. <laughs> yes, of course I would. Um, and um, I also make a series of um, uh, panels, which I did before I met him. I'd, I'd made the, I was just fascinated by making tangible pieces for something that we can't touch and, and that, that lunar landing, where the human footprint has been. Um, so I'd made maps of uh, topographies of the lunar landing sites and I had those, that's the, f the first time I met Al, I had those on the wall and he went, um, and then we talked about those and he went, you want me to sign that? <laughs> I was like, yes, please. <laughs> Um, and then both of those pieces have been made again by Stepped Relief and then modelling, looking at those incredible photographs. And there's a beautiful book by Andy Saunders, who's just done the Apollo Remastered book, which is like the images are fantastic. So I used a lot of that imagery as well as the maps. But when reading the small print on the map, um, the USGS maps, right on the bottom line, it said these maps were made from the photocomposites taken during the Apollo 15 mission and I got goosebumps because Colonel Al Warden who had who liked my book enough to want to take it home with him had taken the photographs that made the maps that I'd made the pieces from before I even met him you know it was just like there were so many different levels where my mind got blown with that whole thing I mean he was a wonderful so. wonderful generous man I'm minded that um, the Mars rover took an enormous number of pictures and my friends at Ordnance Survey did quite a lot of work to take the data that came back from the Mars rover and to produce quite detailed maps of the surface of Mars. And I think uh, there's an opportunity to go from the moon to Mars now, Lorraine. And I to, uh, actually challenge accepted. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm going to set that up. Um, Jeremy Morley, if you're listening to this podcast, expect a phone call from me. Um, I'll get that set up. So we're going to have to sort of draw to a close. And I've got two pieces that you created that I just fell in love with. I've saved them till the end because you always say save the best to last. Um, and if I was really going to save the best to last, it would be the shipping forecast. But I'm going to do the shipping forecast first because the one that I'm going to leave at the end will probably be the best for most of our listeners. But for me, as a Brit who's grown up listening to the shipping forecast at the just before the six o'clock news in the old days, we don't get it anymore. Um, talk about the shipping forecast. I mean... What a thing to make a, a beautiful, beautiful pottery plate out of. Um, thank you. Uh, it, it was, um, I could, so, so some of the stuff that I do, there's a slight dark social tinge to it as well. And uh, it was inspired by Brexit. It was inspired by the Brexit vote. And um, I, I hold my hat. I hold both hands up really, really high. So I'm a Remainer, and I think it was a vast, huge mistake. But anyway, shoot me down now. At least this is the end of the podcast. No, so other people no, no, no. You can say it again. Say it again. So um, yeah, I hold my hands up. I'm a Remainer. So what I wanted to do is to make uh, a piece that just set the UK adrift um, from Europe. So I wanted to make a piece that was about. Um, not just about the shipping forecast, but about kind of a separation, about us being an island nation and being cut adrift from our nearest neighbours at a time when we've got climate emergency and everything else. And we should be dealing with the people closest to us, not dealing with containers <laughs> sort of shipping from the other side of the planet. Anyway, um, but I did, once I started making it, I did I did make another piece initially before, before this plastic that, uh, that um, Stephen's referred to. But the initial piece was called North Atlantic Specimen. And it really was, it, did, it wasn't a plate or a background, it was literally a ceramic model of the, of the British Isles. 
um, pinned like a like a butterfly specimen into a into a frame. So it's just floating away on its own. Um, so I got my anger out on that one. So by the time I actually made the shipping forecast one, I was a bit more kind of lost in the um, uh, north at Sierra, south at Sierra, and those wonderful tones. Like everybody who reads the shipping forecast, it just sounds beautiful. It is available on World Service. You can still get it. Um, but I wanted to make something that was just really summed us up as a as, as a nation of coastlines, of a nation of looking out from the cliffs and the coasts and the beaches, looking out to sea, and those people out there, the you know the the fishermen, the brave people out there that are kind of you know working out on the ocean, and 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 the shipping forecast being really pertinent to their safety, I suppose. Um, so there is a bit of harking back, you know, something slightly nostalgic about it. But I just wanted to make something really physical that um, was reminiscent of the, that kind of classic BBC radio um, shipping forecast. Yeah, and it's it's exquisite. I, it's difficult to describe this on a podcast. In fact, this is the toughest podcast I've done <laughs> where I've interviewed artists because usually I can... I, we can vocalise and verbalise whatever and you can get a sense of it. You've just got to go and look at the show notes. If you're not looking at them now, I'm going to say it again, just go and look because this is an exquisite piece. Um, the island, the islands of Britain, to be precise, because it is the islands of Britain, are just floating off and... It's just exquisite. It's exquisite. Um, and it's my favourite piece, Lorraine, I have to say. But for all the geographers that are listening, for all of you out there, the piece de résistance is a massive piece. It's, well, it's Mercator. And it's just amazing. Go on, Lorraine. Tell me, just describe it. Um, yeah, so uh, I spend a lot of time making globes that are a scale of 1 to 170 million. So the pocket globes are 7.5 centimetres diameter. Um, but I I also make wall-based wall pieces and um, I quite like making large wall-based pieces. And so what I wanted to do is to make a globe with, with a, a significant circumference and uh, present it... Uh, as a piece that could go on the wall, but it, it sort of evolved into a into a piece which actually has two identities and two names. And um, what I wanted to do is to make uh, it's kind of in a way it's an anti-Mercator because what I wanted to do is make a piece that challenged our perception of the world map in terms of. Um, scale and exaggeration of scale. So with the classic Mercator, Mercator is brilliant for shipping direction and everything for hundreds of years, which is why it persisted. But also, it's become entrenched in our psyche that you know that that you know it really, Mercator projection really favours the northern Europeans. And the further you get from the equator, the more exaggerated it becomes. So if you're, um, you know, if you want to portray a position of authority and you want to appear larger, then the Mercator's, you know, Mercator's the the kid for you um but what i wanted to do in this kind of in part of my narrative of my work is is about making pieces that explore how maps influence our sense of place and identity and belonging and how we connect with other people on the planet um so for me what i wanted to do is to make a piece that presented the globe as accurately as possible now, albeit I've exaggerated the heights, so it, it's a relief map, it's a relief globe. The horizontal scale is one to 26 million, the vertical scale is one to half, uh, half a million. Um, and it's uh, in 24 pieces, so it's 12 globe gauze split into two, and they're chunks. So they're, it, I wanted to have something like as if you, like peeling an orange, or, or the closest thing to description is probably a Terry's chocolate orange. If you took a Terry's, Terry's chocolate orange apart and then set it out flat on the wall, that's that's kind of what I've done. But I've I've kind of made it to scale. Um, so except that you haven't flattened it completely. No, no, they're all curved. No. So they're it, it kind of looks like a rib cage. It's like it's like the bones of the earth, kind of. 
put out. If you wanted to teach children about map projections, you could you could do the whole thing just by bringing them to your studio or to a gallery where this was on exhibition and letting them work out where the places were on this piece because it's all there and just get them to understand how we go from a globe to a flat map. I mean, it's it's a perfect explanation. It's a stunning piece. Um, Thank you so much. Um, and, yeah, so... I could go on and on and on eulogising about your work, Lorraine, but I think we've got to stop somewhere. Um, if people want to see your work, when's your next exhibition? So I've got work in a group show at Oxo Tower uh, for London Craft Week, which is the 9th to the 14th of May. Um, so it's Oxo Tower Galleries right by um, Blackfriars Bridge on, in, on the right. Thames. Um that that the piece we've just discussed, just discussed, which is called when it's on the wall, it's called home. When it's on the plinth, as arranged as a kind of a put it together puzzle, which is how the Royal Academy showed it in the summer exhibition, it's called fragmented globe. Um, uh, so that piece will be in that exhibition at Oxo Tower, along with some new pieces, some new work about the Thames. Um, and then the historic pieces, the, um, the circumnavigation vessels and various small globes looking at early modern travel will be at the Bodleian Library from the 20th of May to the 20th of July. Um, and um, uh, I'll have open studios for Peckham Festival and London Design Festival in September 2023. Brilliant. So if, if you're... Interested in seeing Lorraine's work, I've, you can go to those. If you get to her studio, it's an amazing place because there's all these other bits and pieces in there. Um, I thought I was going to be there for 30, 40 minutes. I think we were there for two or three hours chatting. Uh, that's also because Lorraine is so passionate about geography. In the show notes, there's a link to the Little Globe Company. There's a link to Lorraine's other website, which has got some of her other work on it. Um, I really encourage you to go and have a look at it. Lorraine, it's been fantastic talking to you. It was even better coming to the studio and meeting you. Um, and I'll see you at the Arsenal on <laughs> January, January the 3rd, isn't yes. it? That we're meeting at the Arsenal. Yes. And... We'll probably sip a drink and talk maps and then go and watch the Arsenal and hopefully come out of the whole experience happy. <laughs> you never can tell with the Arsenal, can you? No, never anyway, can. Lorraine, it's been a pleasure having you on the Geomob podcast. I'm going to make certain that we get you to come to a Geomob live event sometime next year so that you can show some of your work off at the event as well. Thank you so much. It's been, to you. it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much, Stephen. Pleasure. Thanks for joining us today and listening to the GeoMob podcast. We hope you enjoyed the discussion. Please get in touch with us if you have any feedback or suggestions for topics we should cover. You can get the show notes over on the website, which is at thegeomob.com. While you're there, you can sign up for our monthly mailing list where we keep you informed about upcoming events. You can, of course, also follow us on Twitter where our handle is GeoMob. Thanks for listening and hope to see you at a GeoMop event soon. Mm -hmm.